Welcome everybody tonight to hear uh, this, this talk by Rod Sims. Um, we're able to put these on because a lot of people support the organisation. If you're not a member, there's a, there's a form on your seat. Read it carefully and fill it in. Thank you very much. So now on to tonight's proceedings. Uh, Rod Sims was appointed chairman of the ACCC in August 2011 for a five-year term and reappointed for a further three years in August 2016. He's had extensive business and public sector experience. Immediately prior to his appointment to the ACCC, he was the chairman of the VIPART, the Independent Pricing and Regulatory Tribunal in New South Wales, commissioner of the National Competition Council, chairman of Infra. Intrek Freco, Infraco Asia, Director of NGS Limited and Member of the Research and Policy Council of the Committee for Economic Development of Australia. He was a Director of Port Jackson Partners, where he advised CEOs and boards uh, of some of Australia's top 50 companies and so on. In the, he's had um, a lot to do in the public sector, in various departments, advising Bob Hawke as Prime Minister, his economic advisor, and so on. I invited Rod to speak to us after reading reports in July of his remarks about privatisations and, the, and, the, uh, and their effect on competition and consumer benefit. Now, CEIS is a place that loves the idea of privatisation. I remember as a young, very young person, when I obviously didn't know much better, arguing for the privatisation of just about everything. Ports, banks, airlines, railways, electricity, water distribution and sewers. The sewers was a hard one. And I would have even argued for the privatisation of Queensland's chain of 90 state butcher shops, but they'd already done that some years before. But hang on a second, it's all been happening, hasn't it? Ports, banks, airlines, railways, and so on. So maybe my youthful enthusiasm was on the money. Rod's remarks of a few months ago raised some important issues, and I look forward to hearing more of his ideas tonight. Please welcome Rod Sims. Well, thanks very much, uh, Greg, and delighted to see everybody here. Uh, always impressed every time I come to the CIS. Greg has built this up from scratch, and now to see what's out and around there, it's a real credit to, to Greg, obviously. Um, I was once a member of the CIS uh, till I became a regulator and crossed over to the dark side. Um, but I have to say with... Uh, uh, a degree of uh, genuineness that the ideology behind the ACCC and the CIS is, is actually pretty similar. Uh, our mantra, the way we, um, our sort of subtitle is to make markets work. Um, we don't believe in a lot of regulation for the economy, but we do believe in the Competition and Consumer Act, which we would describe as fairly low-level uh, regulation. And of course, this is where I disagree with Greg, who's a firm Chicago School economic person who basically believes, or the Chicago School does, I won't attribute it necessarily to Greg, although I suspect it's right, believes the ACCC shouldn't exist and we shouldn't have the Competition and Consumer Act. Uh, but we're all got our views. My view is without the ACCC, a market economy would not perform as it should and uh, would be seen not to perform as it should and would uh, come unstuck. Now, the best way to make a point when you're um, in an audience with Greg, is to refer to the economics of Adam Smith. I've learnt this. I don't know whether you, ever you watched The Adams Family, but uh, when Gomez used to speak French to his wife, it, you, she'd, she'd melt at the knees. And Greg has, talking Adam Smith has the same effect on Greg. <laughs> so 
It was Adam Smith who, for, I mean, Adam Smith is in a sense, as far as I'm concerned, the patron saint of the ACCC. Uh, he was the one who first popularised the importance of competition. Um, and I'll just, uh, so Eric Roll, who wrote the preeminent work on the history of economic thought, uh, interprets the wealth of nations to be arguing that the preservation of free competition, if necessary by state action, Greg, uh, was the principal duty of economic policy. And the, the, the other book you read, if you want to read about the history of economic thought by Hilbronner, The world, Worldly Philosophers, uh, mentions Smith's most famous quote, the one that Greg and probably everybody else in this room knows off by heart, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. That's the invisible hand we're all familiar with. Uh, he then goes on to say the following in relation to the theories of Adam Smith. But self-interest is only half the picture. It drives men to action. This was written a while ago. Men and women, it's fine. Something else must prevent the pushing of profit-hungry individuals from holding society up to exorbitant ransom. A community activated only by self-interest would be a community of ruthless profiteers. The regulator is competition. The conflict of self-interested actors on, in co competition with each other in the marketplace. So the point he's making is the invisible hand, which is something near and dear to the hearts of everybody in this room, including me, really only works if you've got a competitive economy. It otherwise does not work. So it doesn't work well with monopoly or oligopoly. It doesn't work well if we protect incumbent businesses. And it doesn't work well if we create national champions, which... Uh, I'm afraid that debate has resurfaced again despite my efforts over the last 40 years to keep belting it on the head every time it appears. Mm -hmm. Now, I gave a speech a couple of months ago. Uh, it was actually to a bunch of fellow microeconomic reformers, people I've known for a long time, and they were bemoaning the lack of economic reform. And I said, look, people who are pushing economic reform need to acknowledge mistakes. And I gave two examples. One was the recent Harper report on competition policy argued strongly that uh, we need to get the private sector more involved in the delivery of uh, social services, health and education. We need more contestability. Um, but then, of course, you have things like the vet fee disaster, vocational education training disaster scheme. I mean, the government's calling it a disaster, the opposition's calling it a disaster. It is an unmitigated disaster. So when you're arguing for the private sector getting involved, it's no wonder most people sit back and dream of, why don't we just go back to TAFE? The other example I gave was privatisation. I, I said that people uh, see more, see privatisation as leading to higher prices and therefore they oppose it. I mean, privatisation is not popular if you take a vote uh, because people believe it leads to higher prices. I then said, they're right. Often, privatisation does lead to higher prices because we privatise for the wrong reasons and in the wrong way. The examples abound of privatising in the wrong way. Uh, Sydney Airport, I always love that example. The government doubled, I'll say it again, doubled the landing charges prior to selling it. They put no constraints on parking fees or anything else. Um, and uh, they also gave the owner the buyer, a first right of refusal over the second Sydney airport so that there wouldn't be any more competition and you'd boost the price. Uh, it's a terrible example of how not to privatise. 
Uh, and of course, that first right of refusal is causing the government all sorts of problems now in trying to get a second airport. Uh, the Port of Melbourne, uh, look, I, could, I, won't, I won't give too many examples, but the Port of Melbourne tried to increase the rents on the land by 750% as they were privatising the port, 750%. You'd have to ask, what, what were they thinking? Um, and look, I had a couple of examples from uh, David Cox, who's in the background, uh, who I just thought I'd add because they're actually sort of relevant today. So David, uh, who's an old friend and colleague, sent me the front page of the Adelaide Advertiser which said that the vast majority of people, 51% blame high electricity prices in South Australia on the privatisation of ETSA. Interestingly, only 15% blame renewables, the high level of renewables. And David mentioned that um, uh, the sale of the Moomba Adelaide gas pipeline, uh, middle of South Australia, or you know, Moomba Basin, uh, middle of Australia, down to Adelaide, uh, when that was sold, uh, David says that the Olsen government um, preceded the sale by doubling the haulage tariff to boost the sale price. And of course, most of South Australia's gas then was uh, electricity was gas fired. And the other, so I was not aware of that example. Thank you, David. Uh, the other one I was uh, aware of uh, by, I guess, rumour more than fact, uh, the Olsen government. Uh, also abandoned the proposed Riverlink interconnector, which would have connected South Australia into the New South Wales grid uh, because it feared it would affect the sale price of the generation assets it was then selling. Now, that was widely rumoured at the time. Uh, I don't know whether it's fact, uh, but it was widely speculated upon. So there are a lot of examples, and I could list, and I'll list a couple of others uh, later on. Uh, but it's interesting... Uh, that you have that public perception. And uh, the, I'm going to make three points today. One is that we should privatise because the government is the wrong owner of commercial assets. And I'm going to stick to commercial assets here. Um, we should be privatising to boost economic efficiency. My second point is that instead we say we're privatising to raise money so we can get dollars to spend elsewhere. Uh, otherwise, we can't spend on this little prize over here unless we privatise something over there. And I'm going to talk about the problems with that logic. And then third, of course, it's a simple step to say, well, if we're privatising to raise money, the better the private... I mean, the privatisation should be judged by how much money we raise and therefore the aim is to maximise proceeds, which, of course, is where we get to uh, remove competition from the privatised entity uh, by making it a monopoly... Uh, and we don't in any way regulate that monopoly, and I'll talk a bit about that, because I think it does huge damage to the Australian economy, and that's the point I was making. So, I'm, so I believe we should be saying, as my first point, that we should privatise commercial assets because the government is the wrong owner of them. I mean, that's standard sort of commercial strategy speak, I guess. When one company sells to another, you say, well, I'm selling because I'm just not the right owner and someone else is a better owner. And, you know, I've seen this, I've been around a long time um, uh, and I've worked in both the public and the private sectors, so I've seen this many times. Uh, a good example is Qantas in the late 80s. They were spending huge amounts on aircraft. These decisions to spend enormous sums of money, I now can't remember what they were, but you know, back then there were at least hundreds of millions of dollars, if not, you know, there was huge money on new fleets of aircraft. And 
these decisions, of course, had to come to the government because the government owned Qantas. And the Cabinet was not pl well placed to make those decisions. That was obvious to the then Cabinet. Um, and the public service wasn't equipped to advise the government on whether or not you buy planes. How are they going to know? Um, really, you should leave that up to commercial people, debt and equity markets. Does the market judge Qantas has done the right thing, increase decrease their share price, we want to lend them money? But it shouldn't be a decision for government. Government was just the wrong owner. And so, really, Qantas was privatised because the government realised it was the wrong owner. Take the polls and wires in New South Wales. I mean, clearly, under government ownership, now, I think, completely admitted, uh, inefficiently run. The government wouldn't allow outsourcing to uh, pick up tasks that required varied, variable levels of intensity, uh, all sorts of work practices issues uh, that management couldn't take on, all been acknowledged by Vince Graham, who uh, was running the grid, maybe still is, I don't know, but was until recently. So I'm not saying anything that I think is in dispute, uh, clear from the Australian energy regulators' view of the uh, poles and wires as well. But if you were there... Um, working around the organisation, you could see it and touch it and feel it. Uh, government, clearly the wrong owner. And so, um, you know, if you privatise the poles and wires, given that they are effectively regulated now anyway, uh, prices will fall, we'll get lower electricity prices. Now, of course, that's slightly confused by the fact that the New South Wales government is challenging the AER's decision and confuses the matter and I think doesn't help, but that's its own story. So my view is if you believe in a market economy and you believe in the role of the private sector, then say so. Don't explain I'm privatising to raise money. So I'm privatising because this thing's going to be more efficiently run. And it's not that hard an argument. I mean, do you think, I mean, no one in Australia, I think, believes we'd have cheaper cars, cheaper food, better clothes if the government had a bigger role in producing them. I mean, no one believes that. They're all fundamental things. So why do we shy away from the argument when it comes to privatising uh, commercial assets is what I'm talking about. Really the list Greg came up with. Uh, most of them are sold, but not all. There's still a lot more around. So my first point is we privatise for economic efficiency reasons not to raise money. And let me go to that raising money. I think it's wrong in logic and I think it's wrong in economics. I think they're the same thing. Um, I mean, let's take a situation where there's just no efficiency gain from the sale. The private sector's going to run it exactly as the public sector does. Then, and these are commercial assets, mind. Why do we think in that situation we're going to sell it for any more than the net present value of the dividend flow? The answer is we're not. There's no money created there. The money you get in year one is equal to the net present value of the dividend flow over many years. You haven't created any money. You've just changed ownership. And we had an interesting case uh, in the sale of Macquarie Generation uh, here in New South Wales. Uh, as it happened, the ACCC opposed the sale. It went to the Australian Com Competition Tribunal. The Competition Tribunal allowed the sale. One reason was they accepted that the government would raise a billion dollars, which it could use to invest in other assets. They accepted that as a public benefit. Now, of course, step one in economics is just a transfer, so how's it a public benefit? But I won't bore you with the economics of that. But they sold it for 
basically retention value. Retention value was formed on the basis of the discounted cash flow of future dividends. So they basically sold it for the NPV of the dividends. But the competition tribunal accepted the $1 billion as money that could be spent elsewhere and ignored the fact that you no longer had the dividend flow. I mean, very strange arguments getting run uh, around here. Now, to me, if you want to build a new income earning asset, and again, I'm talking about commercial assets, then you can borrow the money. I mean, if you want to build an asset that you think is going to earn income, uh, be it a toll road or whatever else, I mean, there's other things you, other ways you can build toll roads just by user pays, but if you want to build an income earning asset, uh, borrow the money, um, charge people for it, you'll get dividends. So there's no reason why you have to uh, privatise something to get money to build another income earning asset. By the way, if you're privatising something to use the proceeds on something that isn't an income earning asset, well, you're probably putting your, your budget backwards. Uh, that's not to say it wasn't a good thing to do. The thing you may spend the money on may have been good. But your budget, I mean, if you, if you raise a billion dollars and let's say the net present value of future dividend flows was only 800, so you, you, know, you made 200 out of the deal. But if you, sell the billion, if you use the billion dollars for either operating expenditure or uh, for some asset that doesn't earn any income, then by definition the budget's worse off. So you haven't created anything and you've got to weigh it relative to the dividends. So, I mean, I think there is an argument that budgets would be better off with privatisation. I mean, when you privatise, if, if the private sector is running these things more efficiently, which I think it will, then either you'll get lower prices to consumers or you'll get um, the private sector paying you more than the net present value of the dividends because they think they can run it better or both. Um, but simply counting the gross proceeds as a windfall without thinking about the lost dividends doesn't make a lot of sense. But this whole focus on money uh, leads us to, uh, I think, seek to maximise proceeds when we sell assets. And you see that every time there is a sale. The Financial Review, uh, not singling them out, but they're a classic on the front page. Look how much money was raised, fantastic. It's a success. So a lot of money raised, success, not much money raised, failure. Wrong. Um, I think you're privatising for economic efficiency. These are assets that matter for the state. You've got to make sure they face competition where they can. You've got to make sure they're properly regulated if they can't. I run into somebody from the state, a state government uh, not so long ago. I won't mention uh, names or... Um, or the state. But they really took me to task and I thought, well, okay, I can see there's a few little weaknesses in some of my arguments possibly. We'll see which way he comes from. And what he basically says was, you know, as he's pointing his finger at me, you don't realise we actually don't have many taxation options in our state. Privatising to maximise proceeds is a very efficient tax. I mean, I could not disagree more. I think it's a, a very inefficient tax because if you're privatising to maximise proceeds, you are imposing, you, you get a one-off gain, but you're imposing a one-off cost on, a, a continuing cost on society as that owner, uh, unfettered by competition or unfettered by any sense of regulation if they're a monopoly, uh, will charge what they like and that will damage the economy. And I'll come back to that shortly. 
but I also think it's a poor tax because they're not telling anybody about it. I mean, if you're going to raise taxes, go through a proper governance process, tell people you're going to raise taxes, put it to the vote and raise them. But don't do it by maximising the proceeds of, of a sale by artificially um, uh, selling something and constraining the competition and making sure there's no regulatory oversight of what the monopoly, the monopoly you've then created can charge. So as I said earlier, we've had many examples which I believe do hurt our economy. I mentioned the 750% rent increase at Melbourne Port. I mentioned Sydney Airport. Um, you've got uh, uh, similar issues at the Port of Fremantle, uh, where again they're seeking, they're looking at a first right of refusal. They're looking at uh, uh, not many constraints on the uh, uh, the prices the, monopoly, the, the, the owners can, can charge. And look at the Port, Port Botany, Port Kembla, Port Brisbane, uh, the Port of Brisbane. There are no constraints really on what the monopoly can charge, uh, and, and I think that's a problem. And let me illustrate why. So we had the Port of Newcastle sale, uh, and everybody was stunned that it sold for 1.75 million. Port of Newcastle is the biggest coal export port, I think, in the world. But I could stand corrected. But it's pretty big, and. Uh, 1.7 million was trumpeted as just being fantastic. Within about six months, the owners revalued the asset up to 2.4 billion, and they increased the price of using the port by 60%, 40 to 60%, depending on the charges. And it's interesting that we're having a debate around that. Um, there is a strong body of, I'm afraid to say, economic view. Uh, being an economist, I, it really does pain me to say this, who argue that it's just a transfer. Don't worry about it. I mean, economics is about total welfare. It's not about consumer welfare. Uh, Adam Smith said it was about consumer welfare, but economics moved on to total welfare, meaning that if you just have a pure transfer between the users of the port and the owners of the port, and it otherwise doesn't affect anything real, like production or investment, uh, uh, then it doesn't matter and who cares. Now, whatever your moral view about who cares, because there, of course, are sunk assets there and people invested in those assets on the basis that the port would be in some way constrained and now they find their economic rent in their coal mine expropriated. Personally, I have a problem with that, but that I accept as a moral view. But the economic view is that I've just failed to see how when you know the Port of Newcastle can do this and can do it again, that you won't have coal companies thinking about, will I invest? Um, uh, will I grow my production? How well will I maintain my assets? How well I will, will I invest in uh, things that can improve my efficiency? Because I've got a monopoly port owner, I must use them and they can suck the economic rent out of my projects. My view is, uh, the onus is on someone who says it's a pure transfer and that won't happen to prove their case. I find myself, though, uh, strangely, in the position where I'm the one who has to defend and explain and argue, uh, particularly the Australian Competition Tribunal, why there is uh, an economic cost, uh, a cost to production or investment from this sort of behaviour. The onus is on me. Personally, I think the onus should be the other way around because a pure transfer requires the port of Newcastle to pluck the goose perfectly 
and I just don't think they'll get it right. I think it will affect production and efficiency. And the fact that we're privatising so many assets without any... So we're, we're limiting competition to them. Um, I should have mentioned at the Port of Melbourne, uh, there was... Uh, uh, I mean, there's a future competitive port uh, at Hastings, the Port of Hastings. Um, originally, they were going to have an effective ban on that for about 50 years. With a bit of pressure from us, that's now come down to 15 years. So it's not, you know, we've got the same problem in Fremantle. Um, so there are a lot of assets that are being privatised in a way that creates the monopoly. And irrespective of whether you created it or it's, or it's a natural monopoly anyway, we're selling assets with no uh, regulatory uh, control. And the regulatory control I think they should have is a negotiate arbitrate regime where the users of the port or other facilities can negotiate with the port owner and work out a, a price they want to charge. And if they can't agree, they go to the regulator and get arbitration. In my view, they'll never come to the regulator, they'll sort it out, but there'll be equal muscle. At the moment, uh, the Port of Newcastle can charge what it likes, could just send the email off telling you what the charge is. There's no negotiation. That's exactly what happened with the 60% increase. Uh, so, uh, I just think you want to increase the muscle in the arm of the users, no matter how big they are when they're dealing with a monopoly by some form of negotiate arbitrate regime, and I don't believe that's heavy-handed regulation. So just to conclude, um, I think the way we privatise actually offends the principles of Adam Smith at his core, in my view. Uh, I mean, Adam Smith, just by the way, I mean, he, he was incensed to write the book because because of government-created monopolies. I mean, that's what got him going. Uh, so I have no doubt in saying he'd be on my side in this debate, but others might have a different view. Um, uh, as I say, because we're creating monopolies without any, any constraints. So I think we should explain why the private sector is better at running these assets. I think we should explain that just as you trust the private sector to make your food and build your cars and your clothes and everything else, that they will do it more efficiently. The government shouldn't be playing a role in commercial assets um, and that if we do it right, it will um, uh, decrease prices and improve overall economic welfare. But in my view, we're doing it wrong. In my view, it is seeing prices rise. In my view, therefore, the public who associates privatisation with higher prices as I look at roundover privatisation, they're more right than wrong. And so we shouldn't uh, signal the public out as saying, oh, well, what do they know? They, they just don't understand the argument. No, no, they understand it very well. They see that we have privatised in ways that push up prices and we shouldn't be doing it because we're actually harming the whole concept of privatisation itself. So thank you.